right, here we are. Welcome back. We are here. We are. We are we're here. Here, wherever here is. Here it is. We're in uh, podcast land. Yeah. <laughs> this is the uh, the great podcast book club. This is definitely the outskirts of podcast land. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we are not in the big city. No, this is not. We haven't. We're we off, off, mice. off Broadway. We are way <laughs> yes. off Broadway. <laughs> we're so off Broadway that we don't even have Broadway in the yeah. in the title of how off we are. <laughs> we're just off. That's great. <laughs> Uh, we're someplace I, in New Jersey, if <laughs> in Broadway land. Jersey, I'd, we're, we're in Pennsylvania, man. That's where we actually we are, in, in fact, in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. So uh-huh. this is uh, Science in Between, and I'm Ollie. And I am Scott. And what episode are we in? Like, uh, like We're on 18, dude. We are in a dozen and a half episodes. Wow. We are rocking it. We are. Uh, this is, as we were discussing before the show, though everything's in the show that's in the show, um, this episode is coming out uh, the last episode of 2020. So we will have transitioned to a new year right. uh, for this podcast. Yes. This, we that, will be and in our second year. That is wild and there are actually people listening and sending us emails and it's yeah. it's awesome to hear from listeners and it's it's great that you're all here yeah. and if you're on this book club journey with us uh we are on chapter three of brian brown's book uh science in the city culturally relevant stem education so yes, if if you're if you just kind of like happened on episode 18 uh Get yourself a book. You do. If you're wandering yeah. around podcast land and you just stumble sure. into this. Yeah, you got lost and made a left and made <laughs> took a, a long turn in Albuquerque. And Google Google Maps was broken and you ended sure. up here. Yeah. And somehow a bad link brought you to our podcast. And so here you are. You were yeah. hacked. You've been hacked. <laughs> yes. Uh so this I think the interesting thing about chapter three uh that was was new for me is this concept of linguistic relativity. So if you're, if you're following along, this is um, Brian Brown is presenting, uh, you know, his perspectives on how we uh, teach science in settings where we're working with like culturally diverse students and how we can do this in better ways and more inclusive ways. And chapter three, he introduces this idea of linguistic relativity. And which I think from physics people, that's awesome. It's like, hey, relativity. Oh, relativity, right. Yeah. Uh, You didn't see Uh, that connection. You missed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely missed it. Um, (laughs) I saw the little light bulb go off right there. It was was great. I'm glad I could do that for you. That's what I'm here for. Yeah, it was a light bulb. Um, Definitely (laughs) figured something out there. Um, No, but uh, like this, yeah. I mean, did you had you heard of the strong Worfian hypothesis before this? I had not. That was something I actually Googled it to to make sure that, like, not that to make sure it existed, but I just want to see a different take on it. Like, and so this was uh, versus linguistic relativity. I guess the other, you know, end of the continuum or the other belief is this idea of linguistic determinative determ. You want you want to take a stab at determinism. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and that's where this uh the this stars uh the Star Trek Worf guy comes in. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I was going to ask that same question. Like, do you think when they named Worf, they were naming him after? Yeah. Benjamin Lee Worf, founder of the strong Worfian hypothesis. Yeah, I I thought that because I was uh I, you know, because that character in Star Trek is so, Worfian. Oh, yes. Wow. Was that a compliment? 
Uh, yes, <laughs> it that's was another term that Brian Brown introduces us to. <laughs> right. Which I think that one he just made up on his own, or maybe, maybe they didn't. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he I didn't. don't know. Well, he said he borrowed a term I later heard from a comedian. So, hmm. okay, so maybe he didn't make it up. So we'll have to see if we can find a, a a link for a comedian who refers to a compladis. Since you can talk, you can actually say the word, and I can't. Do you want to hmm. actually like try to uh, the Warfian determinism? Yes, yeah. that thing. Well, basically, like, and I and I knew this. Um, I mean. In fairness, I did know a little bit about this because um, the research I do is uh, is focused on discourse analysis, which sure. means I brush against linguistic analysis. Um, and so I've heard of things like the strong Worthian hypothesis. And basically, in to put it into like straight layman's terms, he said, "You're you know people speak different languages, and um, those languages frame how you think." And therefore, you can only think the thoughts that you are capable of thinking in the language that you have. So your language determines the kind of thinking you're capable of. Um, and, you know, there were there was lots of discussion about this. Um, and and as Brian talks about, it, this has largely been backed away from by almost everybody that this idea that that you are like what you can think about is defined by the language that you have. Um, but I think uh, the fundamental point that's broader than this is that there is a relationship between thinking and talk, um, and and it's important as teachers to understand that relationship um, because he's he's making the argument um, earlier in the book about science, like be, learning science is like learning a second language. Um, but what he's trying to do in this chapter, I think, is saying just because they don't speak the language of science doesn't mean they can't think the ideas of science. And and I think that's that's his sort of analogy, right? That's why he's using the strong Worfian hypothesis here to say, like, that's to think that the only way you can think about science is if you talk in science language is really an analog to the strong Worfian hypothesis, um, which has been abandoned, right? So he's trying to say, like, we need to think more in a more nuanced way about the way we talk to kids. Yeah, and and that the language that they use may actually be much more conceptually in line with the things that we're talking about in our classes, just because they're not using the terms that we would use. And so what we have to do is really get at the heart of what they're what students are trying to say in the language that they're using to to better un uncover what they're saying and how that aligns or doesn't align with the science we're trying to teach. And so, um, and he presents some really interesting stories in this. Um, one was a, about a, a football player and he had in his class who was talking about, uh, you know, running a marathon or what it was like to run a marathon and what it meant to sweat. And he uses an analogy for like an ice cube uh, sitting on a sidewalk. And then he also did uh, share some work in terms of where he talked to, to baseball players and specifically pitchers and where they were talking about some, some pretty you know, high level, you know, physics stuff in terms of what makes curveballs curve and was really talking about like, okay, so what, what, when you throw this pitch, what does it do? And how's, how's the air, you know, relate to the seams and what do you do? And in Brian's work, he talks about how the language that they use, which is in a completely different community, it's in the baseball community, it's in, it's how pitchers talk to one another and coaches talk to, to players. The, the language they do sort of maps nicely into in some ways. And we could 
unpack that a little bit more in a few minutes in terms of like these different ways conceptually and linguistically um, they align or, or map to science. And, but I think those stories help to, you know, frame it for us as, as readers and as science teachers to see that these are things that we could do in our classroom. And it's not that much of a stretch. It's not that so far outside of what, uh, what we do. And rather than just going, okay, it's not the language of, you know, and the perspiration, you know, example is so great because he says, okay, so the student never uses these terms and he lists a whole bunch of terms that would be related to perspiration. And, but he says that there's still so much good stuff here that represents good science that, um, and I think that really comes down to, you know, that that's, you know, linguistic relativity thing versus that Worfian thing that i'm not going to try to say again i'm not going to say it again okay i'm not going to try just not going to do it like i'm not going to press you um uh yeah so i mean the um he talks about student science knowledge not being confined to science language like that's the way he's trying to talk about this um linguistic relativism which is to say like ali was talking about right or what like you were talking about here um I don't know whether to talk about you in the third person or talk about you as you. I, it's so hard, Ollie. It I mean, is. You're, you're such an authority figure. And and so I feel like I should refer to you as Ollie or the uh, the great and powerful Ollie or something like that. But um, to make it easier, I shall call myself Ollie as well. <laughs> I, I shall. I shall from this point forward be known. Ollie has declared it. <laughs> Ollie will be called Ollie. Uh, or I could talk about myself in the third person and do sort of a Carl Malone thing where I'm like, Scott McDonald says that, <sighs> but wow. uh, the point being that, uh, that there's this thing about um, that, you know, helping kids express their understandings in the words that they have and the language that they're, that they're familiar with and that they're um, that they have strength in there is value in that. And, and, um, and when we, you know, and, he, and we talked about this in the last chapter too, the idea that like, there's only the, the science language is somehow the only correct way to talk about it. And if you're not talking about it that way, you misunderstand the ideas. And I think this is, you know, again, this thing that he's trying, the point he's trying to make with this chapter is like, that's really important for us as teachers to understand that, the language using the language of science <clears throat> does not in and of itself mean that the students understand the thing that we are talking about and that you can express very sophisticated and thoughtful understandings of the thing, the concept um, without using the science language. And um, it's, it's um, important and uh, central to what we do as science teachers to recognize the complexity of how kids are talking in their own vernacular, because that is the starting point for building on their ideas in class towards more robust understandings of science. And the, the, the science, the technical science language can come as it comes, but we as teachers have to really use and see kids' ideas as, as the, you know, the central um, grist for the mill, the, the thing that really drives our thinking and talking and curriculum is students' ideas. So the, the two things that, like, as I was reading this chapter, the two things that just kept spinning in my head was one, this, the in-between land that we're in right now in terms of that we've moved this remote 
online hybrid world that everybody's working in. And that uh, with our students being at a distance, that we're probably not engaging in this, this, kind, this kind of discourse in a regular way uh, that much. Mm-hmm. And that what we're doing is we're probably having, maybe some of our students are maybe typing in answers in discussion forums, or maybe they're taking quizzes that are like, you know, not giving the opportunity for them, or maybe some pre-assessments or something where we're saying in, as teachers, okay, we want you to use this kind of, you know, formal language or we're formalizing it, which is really undermining this, right? We're really undermining the kind of discourse which would allow students to use language that they're more comfortable with to discuss the things that are their ideas and their uh, their conceptualizations of science. And so I, I wonder, you know, we keep going back to these are suggestions I've made in other episodes where, you know, more video, more audio, more, you know, synchronous type of things, but that's not environments that everyone has access to. But those are things that I think would lean, lend more, more to this kind of discourse. But I, I, and I worry about these classes. So that one of the solutions that a lot of schools are using are these prepackaged curricula that they that they come you know they pay you know some outside vendor who's already created this and i won't get into all the companies because i don't want to like disparage any of them um but they you could buy you know uh you know physics one conceptual physics from somebody right and they give you a prepackaged course and the students independently work through that class um but but i i and i've seen a bunch of them and i i know i know what they look like and i i i know um how well they work or don't work. Uh, but I, I, I will say that very little of that is designed from this perspective, if at all. I don't think any of it is. And it's, it's not designed from the standpoint of recognizing students, you know, conceptualizations of science based on their own vernacular, the, 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 the words they would use in, in, in their settings. And a lot of it is just like this, you know, replacement, not even replacement. It's just like adopting, adopting this language. Mm -hmm. And so all it really does is the students are just going to bracket it, right? It's just going to be bracketed off to like the side of like, I'm going to, you know, spit it back to you, but it's not going to be meaningful in any way. And that's not learning. Um, So I have some real challenges with that before I read this chapter, but even more so now after reading this chapter. So that was the one big idea that was you know, mulling in my head. The other is you Wait, and I, let, let me talk about the first idea a little bit. All right. You, you rock on. I just yeah. went off on a tan. Uh, uh, that's okay. Rabbit hole. Um, so, I mean, and, and I think, yeah, I agree with that. And I think um, for me, it's about this, you know, your, your example of this curriculum um, that you sort of purchase and just put in place. Right. Um, is, it's fundamentally built in this transactional model of right. teaching, right? Which is that the the purpose of teaching is to get information from place A to place B and that there's an exchange involved. The exchange is that if the kids behave well and do what they're supposed to do, then they get a good grade. And, and so there's this notion that it's, that teaching is a transactional act. And I think you and I both see this and Brian and the way he talks about this is that this is a relational activity, right? Like teaching is about building relationships and it's about 
you building relationships with your students and you helping facilitate the building of relationships of your students with each other. And, you know, to your point about this in-between space, I think that is a deep challenge that we're facing is it's much more difficult to do relational teaching in these environments because the, the bandwidth is lower and the interaction is not as good. Um, and, and there is this, you know, as we've said multiple times is default to falling back to the worst possible notions of pedagogy, like just deliver, like you're saying, go out and buy a curriculum and just implement it and put it in place. And that'll teach the kids all this stuff. Um, so I think this, um, this really is a question of how do you think about your class as a place where they're, kids are talking to each other and talking to you because that's how you develop relationships. That's how communities develop. That's how relationships develop. And, and so fundamentally, how do we think about science classrooms as that kind of a place? Um, and Brian is, that's what he's getting at with this is how do we think about talking with kids that way so that they see this as a relationship that we're, you know, like to your example before, if you, if you had a friend um, who every time you got in a conversation, all they ever did was correct your language and say, no, 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 you mean this or no, uh, you know, like they would not be your friend for very long um, because nobody wants to have a relationship with that person. That's why nobody wants to have a relationship with me because I do that to everybody. I was just going to use that as an opportunity for an intervention with you, Scott. I, I was going to say, I, I buddy. This I is... took the softball off the team because I did not want you hitting that one. Yeah, I so, saw it. Uh, I saw it. I was going to, yeah, you know me so, too well, my friend. That's right. So now, yeah. now, now you can do your second thing. I just want to, you know, I want to come well, on. I, that I, I'll say, say this is, you know, so you and I both came up in science education um, when the term misconception was really in vogue, right? That was the way we described. And I think my my master's thesis, if I remember correctly, it goes back to like 92 or something, was wow. on misconceptions of science that middle school students ha held. And so at that time, you know, misconceptions was the thing. They were the thing. Yeah. And and at some point over the last, uh, you know, two, three decades, you know, there's this, you know, this movement for, you know, reframing that as alternative conceptions, right? And alternative ways of, of thinking. And, and for the most part, I thought it was just semantics, you know, mm -hmm. um, until I read this chapter and then I'm like, okay, I'm on, I'm on board. Mm -hmm. And not that I was like resistant to the change in terminology, because I think words matter. It's just that I was like, okay, it's like just, in, in some ways, just moving around the the deck chairs, right? It didn't seem like a meaningful change. To it didn't seem like a meaningful change, but I feel differently now. I feel differently after after reading this chapter and and hearing. And even though he never uses the term misconceptions or alternative conceptions or whatever, right. but I think that if we're really going to buy into this idea that we're going to talk with students about science and we're going to meet them where they are and using language that they're comfortable with and not do that thing that you do all the time, Scott, with correcting people and saying, you know, that what you really meant to say was, yeah. you know, I, I prefer to think of it as not correcting, but just readjusting them <laughs> so that they are appropriately speaking. So, yes. And yeah. I, <laughs> thank you. So, for example, <laughs> exhibit A. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You're nice. welcome. <laughs> uh, 
but I mean, I, that's the other big thing that came in my head. Like there's, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in chapter three here, but I think those were two ideas that just were mulling around in my head as I was, you know, thinking about this is the, the journey we're taking right now in an education um, and also um, the journey that science education itself has taken over the last, you know, 20 or 30 years in terms of how they see student learning and what what the prior knowledge that our kids come to our classroom with, mm-hmm. you know, as as not a, a not a deaf, and I think this is where it comes because it's the the you know the deficit mindset, right? Mm-hmm. It is yeah. the deficit mindset that is communicated in the terminology. It's like you know a misconception is communicating is a deficit mindset, mm-hmm. and the, framing it differently is is not just semantics; it's important. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I think that's the fundamental one of the fundamental problems with it. I think the other thing that it does <clears throat> is it creates a sort of binary world where there are right and wrong answers, right? Like right. The, there's the correct conception and there's the misconception. Yeah. And I think we all know that that's a crazy way to think about science, right? Like the way that I understand even physics, right, which is in theory my area of expertise in science is a first order approximation compared to somebody who's actually does physics for a living. So so does that mean that my understanding is wrong or a misconception or no, it means that my my ideas in some ways are less sophisticated um, than a physicist in terms of particular things, but my first order approximation is actually a pretty useful w- thing in a lot of ways. And I think it's the same, you know, put, if we think about this as like a continuum of ideas, um, that have relationships to each other that are about the same thing, then I think it's a little easier to, um, to think about how, how, kids' ideas are not just wrong or right for that matter, because right doesn't make any more sense than wrong does. Like a kid giving you the right answer in class, what does that mean? Like that's not for me an interesting question. It goes back all the way back to the way back machine in our, when we were talking about IRE, right? Like the idea that, you know, you're going to give me, I'm going to ask a question, you're going to give an answer, and then I'm going to determine, is it right or wrong? And, and you know, the, the sort of hedging is, well, you know, I didn't say they were wrong. I said, oh, you're on the right track, or that's an interesting idea, yeah. or there's some good in that. And <laughs> that's like a compliment, right? You know, yeah. this idea that it's a compliment and a, and a diss together, right? It's like saying, yeah, what was this example? Like, oh, the clothes you're wearing today are clean. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's, congratulations, or yeah. you, you look really nice today. And, it, you know, it's like, as opposed to the way that I always look, right? So it's this compladis thing. Yeah, and I, I think that the way you brought us back when you talk about like the binary, like that science isn't like science understanding isn't binary. That goes right back to chapter three. It goes right back to what Brian's pr- presenting, and also you know, and I think that's a good transition point for us to to talk about the the those continuities he talks about, like you know where he uh, he presents these two, and this is after he talks about baseball. Um, that he says there's you know conceptual continuity, and there's also linguistic continuity, mm-hmm. and that these two things are really great ways of framing this you know this lack of binary right that's not a binary that is shades of gray and that you know people's language they can have linguistic continuity which means that they're describing something or they have a term for it that aligns really nicely to the terms that we would use in science it might not be it but the terms might be really like so in in and he uses the uh, a friction example like the grippiness of a ball and that grippiness may it, it aligns really nicely the way we would describe you know, or name 
friction. Mm-hmm. And then there's the uh, conceptual continuity, which, you know, says that conceptually or like there's the way that, the, and again, coming back to the baseball players, the way that they would, you know, talk about something may not be the same terms, but the same sort of, you know, concepts are, are captured in some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great ways of framing this, you know, grayness of, of students' understanding. Right. It gives you a little more nuanced way to think about um, when a kid can contribute something in class, how to, because really, well, what I was going to say is how to diagnose uh, yeah. that. And in the sense that that's really what we're doing, if we're doing good science instruction is we're listening to kids' ideas and we're diagnosing them. And I don't mean that to sound negative because I think sometimes that sounds like, oh, there's something wrong with you. You're sick. I have to. There's a symptom. It. There's some like, uh, like exactly disease or something. That's not, right. you're, I don't think it's your intention. That's not the way I'm reading it. Right. So, so what I mean by that is, is you're taking the idea and trying to understand a understand the idea as, as it has been expressed. And then I think Brian is suggesting starting to think about how can you as the teacher make some of these either linguistic or uh, um, conceptual links between what the kid is saying and the sort of normative science understandings so that you can start helping make those connections, not telling them, not restating their idea using the science language, because that is the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish here, But but identifying in the kid's idea some of these continuities so that you can use those as points of leverage to help the kid think through that idea, introduce that to the, to the larger community of students and, and build a discourse around that. So that really is, um, I think what he's trying to accomplish here is say, this gives you a way to, in a more nuanced way, think about kids' ideas and how you can build on them. And then uh, he, he also talks about, and I, this was new to me and I don't know like how I missed this in the, science ed community but the epe stuff like that was new to me like is that something that you've been around the epe framework is that something that you're had in your no yeah it was something brand it was so epe explanations patterns experiencing yeah yeah i mean yeah go ahead yeah so um he talks about this 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 uh, framework from Anderson and Sharma, where he talks about um, the way that we, you know, sort of, you know, talk about science, how we, you know, link, and it's it's EPE, which stands for experiences, patterns, and and explanations. And so, you know, I, this is a way of thinking about science and science education is what we want to look do is provide experiences that you know lead to patterns, then that ultimately lead to explanations and this is a framework of science and i hadn't actually i mean maybe we do it or maybe i but i just never looked at it from that perspective Mm -hmm. right and so or you can draw on students experiences and then you know help use that to establish patterns and then then we build to explanations from that and i that's the the way he sort of you know leads into the stories of the uh the baseball players and and curveballs and things by talking about their experiences with you know making pitches break and and things like that and which you know you and i both you know baseball people we like baseball right you're 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 a a, uh a grandson of a yankees manager right uh great great grandson of a yankees player but the indians manager. oh sorry I, i i 
my wires were crossed there. That's sorry. right. It's, it's, I'm pretty impressed that you remember that. Yeah, no, shout out to, to Roger Peckinpah. <laughs> Peckinpah. Astro- what? Wow, wow, wow. You're it, laughing at his I'm laughing. not laughing. Yeah, I am not like, laughing. Like laughing. It is a classic baseball name. Is it, it a is. classic? No. It, it is. I think it is. I think, you know, it would be something in, you know, Field of Dreams. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but that EPE framework was new to me. And so that was another thing that kind of gave me a little bit of pause because I was like, whenever I come across something like that, I was like, you know, really uh, question the utility of it because it's like things are rarely that like simplistic and nice. Right. right? Um, Things that like these models are have limited utility. You know, so when you're presented with a model, it's it has, oh, it's good for this or this, but it's not good for this. And so where that's where I looked at it. And I was like, okay, I've, I haven't seen this thing before. Uh, how does this, you know, what is the use usefulness of this? And is it something that I, um, and so I, that's where I sort of landed on. Yeah, it makes yeah, sense. I mean, it yeah, makes sense, it, but I, I don't think I'm going to be like jumping on the EPE framework, you know, bandwagon. I'm not going to become the EPE fra- uh, profit. That's not me. Guy. I'm not going to be that dude. No. Well, in fairness, it's, it, you know, the, it was from a conference presentation 17 years ago. So, I mean, I think it's part of Wow. You just, wow. That was, that that was snarky. Yeah. That was the most academically snarky thing that has happened in this podcast. All 18 episodes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but, and, but, and what, what I mean by that is, um, to your point, I mean, it's, it's an interesting observation, but it's also, um, you know, uh, your friend and mine, uh, Greg Kelly, always says like it's a fine line between uh, between obvious and and profound, and I think these guys fell on the obvious side of it, which is fine. Um, but it's you know basically the idea that the way science works is you know you have experiences, and then those experiences over time. Um, develop into patterns that you identify, right? And this is what he's talking about with the baseball players is that they throw the ball and they start to understand from their experience, not from a deeply analytical sort of scientific way, but just from their own experience, like what the patterns are, right? And from those patterns, they develop their own explanation. So this process of going from experience to pattern to explanation is something we do as human beings. Like it's just built into us in some way, right? Like it's part of our cognition. Um, and what science does to some degree or other is formalize that and decide what gets to count as a pattern, what gets to count as an explanation, what part of our experience gets to be evidence for those things. And as a result, we get, you know, scientific things. So what he's trying to analogize here, and I think why he's drawing on this EPE framework is that he's saying like, this thing doesn't, isn't just a science thing, right? So the the way that the baseball players are doing this is in the is outside of what we consider science right they're not but they are having experiences building patterns and building explanations and we can leverage that and the fact that that general pattern is the same not just in science but in in life everyday people life um to to draw that into the conversation about science so when when Brian went to this conference presentation in 2003, he, he must have found it very meaningful. I so guess. even though you were, you know, kind I of mean, pooping on AJ Sharma and Charles Anderson, um, I, I don't think I was pooping on them. I was just, <laughs> I, I definitely, Andy Anderson is, you know, is a great man. He is a he is a a, a scion of the field. He is a he is a 
a person I admire greatly. I, I don't know AJ Sharma, but, um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm not pooping. I'm just saying, uh, <laughs> I'm just saying that, um, I, th- I mean, I think he, Brian uses it with a purpose, sure. but I think part of the reason that you don't know about the the uh, EPE framework and I don't is because um, it also doesn't tell us um, a, something really profound or new um, about the way we think about things. So um, I think that Brian uses it to tell us something new, which I do think is interesting because he's, he's talking about how this framework helps us understand the relationship between talk outside of science that is fundamentally scientific and talk within science that is deemed scientific and how those things map onto each other. And and maybe that's the other thing is maybe it's a, it's a lot of that is like informal ed stuff, right? It's like the informal science education stuff, which is not like part of my work. It's not part of yours either. So, you know, this is how people are learning science in more informal, you know, settings than, you know, things we work with. Yeah. So, that so that might, it might, might, maybe it's a thing over. Maybe it's a big thing over an informal science is what you're saying. Maybe it is. I don't know. Right. I don't know. Maybe. I'm just trying not to poop on it. Whereas I I'm noticing that <laughs> I feel like I, I really came, I, I was not coming down hard on it. I'm just saying, um, this is, it's not a framework that I'm familiar with. It is not one I am as well. So yeah. in fairness, that's how the conversation started. As you said, you'd never heard of this. And I think you sort of pooped on me or at least the whole <laughs> graduate program at Penn State, because you sort of implied that the reason you hadn't heard oh, of it was I, I did not graduate <laughs> no. program didn't prepare you to yeah. know about the EP framework. Uh, no, I did not. I did not I, say that I think, at you all. Need, I think you might need to listen back because I'm pretty sure that's what you said. You're like, I did not encounter this in Look, my graduate program. If, if uh, I said uh, that, then I would embrace the fact that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, next time I get together with my other graduate student friends from Penn State, I'm going to test them yeah. and see see if okay. they know and about I'll... the EPE framework. That's going to be the test. And then, but then you have to have the follow up question, which is, do you feel like this was something that you you should have encountered in your graduate program? Yeah, this this episode has devolved <laughs> into name calling. <laughs> you're you're the one who started the poop talk. If we're gonna if we're gonna be honest. Right. And they're turning the tables, my friend. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So um, what else in this chapter do you think we need to uh, talk about before we like, I, I think the the big ideas it, uh, are that, you know, uh, science understanding isn't binary, that, you know, that it's not black or white, that our students can, you know, really understand parts of science. And it's not it's not we shouldn't be like complimenting them by saying things like, well, you're kind of got it, but, mm. you know, but then understand that, you know, in the ways they describe things that they can have some linguistic continuity with, you know, science understanding in terms of using terminology that might align. And they might also have some conceptual uh, continuity in terms of being able to talk about things in ways that uh, align with conceptual ways that we talk about things in science. And um, those are important things. And the way that students use uh, terminology in their vernacular um, to communicate science ideas is is the important thing in the discourse that happens in our classroom. If we're going to embrace this culturally relevant pedagogy in our classrooms to be more inclusive and create spaces for for all students to find science, a place for them to exist and succeed. Yeah, right. And I think we need, you know, for me, the takeaway is this idea that like our obsession with the right answers is not just bad. It's, it's, um, 
it's disenfranchising and marginalizing, and it's not not creating supportive learning environments. So this this idea that the only way to talk about science is in the in the language of science, and if you're not doing it, then you're not talking about science. I think that is a toxic way to think about the kids in your class. Is that until they start talking in the appropriate science vernacular, that they're basically not talking about science. And that isn't what we want to try to accomplish. We want to try to accomplish kids who feel like they're capable of contributing to science ideas before they know the terms for friction and force and gravity and whatever else we're trying, you know, what we're working with them on. And so, yeah, I think, I think that is, um, that that's what makes this potentially culturally relevant is that that you you do understand that the kids in your classrooms have different cultural assets and that your job is to draw on those to make an amazing learning environment so there you go there you go so speaking of amazing learning environments let's let's learn something about each other and, and talk about what brings us joy this week. brings us joy this week all right yeah it, is it you? Is it me? Who's, I, I think last time I jumped all over it and like pushed you, literally, not figuratively, but literally pushed you out of the way and went first. So I think it's your turn to go first. All right. So uh, about, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I signed up for HBO Max. Um, and this is something that my, my daughter and my son were like, hey, uh, can you sign up for HBO Max for my son? He wanted to watch, uh, there's a Steven Universe uh, series that's on there that he's a big Steven Universe uh, fan. For my daughter, there are a couple series that have been like really promoted by her friends that they're like, hey, could you check us out? So uh, I signed up for, you know, a month to month kind of thing just to see. And I said, look, if we're going to watch it. And, but my joy is not HBO Max, although it's, it's pretty awesome. Um, my joy is the Harley Quinn series on HBO. It's a, it's a theme here, right? It's a comic book theme that keeps running through uh, the in between. Uh, episodes in and I will say if you've seen any of the Harley Quinn movies um, she uh, she's in Suicide Squad and then she's in the Birds of Prey movie uh, this is a different animal than that this is I would say it's uh, very similar this is a very adult cartoon so if you are like if you're like sitting hey I'm, my my uh my seven-year-old really likes harley quinn and and batman this is not the episode to this watch with. this is not the, the series this is not the series to watch with them this is something that uh honestly i i listen with headphones on because i don't want like my children coming in and hearing me laugh at some of the jokes that are wow. uh going on there wow. are so it's it's naughty and, and you're and just to be clear your children are not 10 years old they are not 10 years old one is uh 19 and the other one is uh 14 and so neither of them would be i think i would just blush at some of the things i was laughing at yeah. and not i mean it's not like um graphically um anything that would be it's all like the jokes it's all the jokes it's all the characters it's all the um yeah they cross the line on a regular basis so if you're a uh if if you're a fan of that kind of humor, um, then you're like Deadpool kind of humor. So if you've seen Deadpool, if you laugh at Deadpool, if you think Deadpool is funny, then a Harley Quinn series will be something that's right up your alley because yeah. I think those the boys, things, which was recently mentioned. Sure. The boys is like, you, like that too. If you find that stuff funny, then you're going to find Harley Quinn funny. And they're all like 25 minute episodes and they're all animated and it's, it's great. And I think my favorite character is Bane who has some of the best lines. Um, and yeah, which is, you know, great to think that Bane would be the guy, but 
so there's my joy harley quinn hbo max that's uh that's awesome i like that um i have not i i am familiar of course with the harley quinn character and and the movies but i have not seen the series so i will uh, add it to my queue and i will watch it only on my own with headphones on so that nobody you won't get very far without realizing why that recommendation yeah, was made I'm, I'm sure that's true yes so so i'm gonna sort of go uh old school nerd though it's relevant uh to to the more new school nerd universe which i will explain so i um well actually i'll start with that so soon and there have been trailers dropped for this there is a new dune movie coming um and and uh so as part of this uh, my family has sort of a tradition that if there are movies that we're interested in watching we try to read the books before we see the movies oh that's great um, so i have returned to dune the original frank herbert uh novel which i don't remember when i read it last it wasn't i mean i definitely read it in like high school and maybe even middle school um but definitely in high school and probably in college i've read it's one of those books that i've returned to many times i can't remember the last time though it's definitely been at least 10 years um so i'm currently rereading that book uh in preparation for the timothy chalamet version that is coming down the pipe um and it, the, the rest of the cast looks amazing it looks it looks like it could be really interesting, but um, but there is also the David Lynch movie from 1984 of Dune, which uh, has Kyle MacLachlan in it and is uh, it's a train wreck. Weird. And, <laughs> and, it's so odd. But uh, but I may watch that as well. But what I can recommend unequivocally is Dune the book, which is right. a fantastic book and really. Um, you know, it's been a while since I've had a book that I'm like carrying it around with me so that anytime I have a few minutes, I'll just flip it open and read a few pages and then flip it closed. And, you know, and that I'm getting into bed and starting to read a chapter and then finding myself like three chapters later. And I'm like, ah, I really got to get to bed because so I, I strongly recommend if you haven't if you haven't read Dune, please go read it. And if you have read Dune and you haven't read it like me in like 10 years or something, go back and get it because it's fantastic. Yeah, I haven't read that series in like 30 years. I read it in like maybe high school, maybe late like uh, college, yeah. but I, I should check it out. That's uh, just a, like I've been watching the trailers for the and it looks mm. really good. I'm, mm. I keep looking to see where if Sting is going to make an appearance because he, sure uh, yeah. no, no, he, <laughs> he was in the no, no, he will because he was in the original. He was. He was, he was uh, Jade Rotha. He was like the he was like the hot Harkonnen guy. He was he was going to be the yeah yeah. Then that was it. Yeah, they only so, made one. It was a it was a train wreck of a movie. Yeah. Um, but I, this I, one I'm looks so about watching it though. Yeah, uh, after you're done, just just to you know experience the pain again. That's right. Well, you know it'll be like a it, it'll be like a high low high experience. So I'll read the book, I'll be like all excited, I'll go watch the movie and be disappointed and then I'll watch the new movie and it'll be spectacular, I hope. And Right. I hope they don't mess it up, man. That's all I'm saying. Like come on. We'll keep our fingers crossed for that. And and, and certainly when that movie comes out and uh we watch it, we will be talking about it here on well, well, unless it doesn't man. bring us joy, maybe or or we're we're just torn off the air, right? They're like they just expunge science in between from well, podcast land. Awesome. That could yeah. happen. Because we're having we're having so much influence <laughs> on the podcast universe yes they're like wait they are becoming like a black hole for listeners like they suck more and more people in who cannot ever escape their awesomeness yeah so is, is that what we're saying yes that's exactly right and i think that's probably a good place for us to you know say let people go for a week yeah let them yeah. go about their business 
Absolutely. So, hey, thanks for being here, and I'll catch you next time in between. In between. Thanks. Yeah. 